Turn your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 44 this morning. If you have your Bibles, go, go ahead and get them on out. Get them on out. Genesis 44, first book of the Bible. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for uh, the uh, life that we have, for the breath that we have. Uh, we thank you for the uh, freedom that we have to come into this place and to sing praises to your name uh, and to open up your word and to study and try to be taught and uh, molded by it. We pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would impress upon us this morning what you would have us learn and see and that we would uh, soften our necks to not be stubborn against your, your will and your teaching. Lord, I thank you and I praise you uh, for the work of your Son and for the uh, proclamation of your Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. We just thank you and we praise you and we pray this in your precious and holy Son, in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Genesis chapter 44. We'll be looking at the whole chapter today. Verse 1. Then he, being, being Joseph, he, uh, then he commanded the steward of his house... Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. So like I said last week, um, chapters 42 to 45 are one uh, kind of lengthy unit. Uh, really getting at one particular point. Uh, that one particular point, we don't again, we don't get to see it until uh, next chapter, chapter 45, which which is where Joseph kind of finally comes to this realization that what God is 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 doing, God has been using the the events of the people in his own life for the for the good of the community, for the good of his people. Um, meaning what what the uh, what Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God is going to mean for good. And this is, this is what colors the whole story here. In uh, chapter 44, we again see Joseph kind of uh, manipulating the situation to, um, to teach his brothers a lesson or to, to you know, get revenge for the things that they did to him or, uh, or, or simply test them to see where they're at. We don't, we don't really know is what I suggested last week and it's okay that we don't really know. We're just going to look at what, what we see in the story. Uh, but at, at this point in the story, we kind of get, we kind of get the, final, uh, the final attempt or the final attack of Joseph. Uh, and, and the first two verses here set the stage. So what we, what we saw in the last two chapters is that Joseph finally sees his brothers again after 20 years of being uh, you know, sold into slavery and rising to prominence in Potiphar's house and then being thrown in prison because of his moral uprightness and not, not uh, sleeping with his, with his master's wife. And he's, he rises to prominence in the prison and he's forgotten in the prison. He's finally, he finally gets a, a, an audience with Pharaoh, tells him about his dreams, and is put uh, as the second most important man in the whole of the nation of, of Egypt, which, is, which at this point is the most powerful nation on earth. So Joseph really arguably is... is is the second most powerful man on earth and, and, and potentially even, even in, in his activities, probably more so than even Pharaoh. He's, he's, he's finally found a place of, of prosperity, finally found a place where he can, where he can say in naming his, his sons, 
at the end of chapter 40, 41, he names his son, you know, Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my hardships in my father's house, and Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. He thinks he's finally made it, right, made it out of this difficult time, and now he's in the place where God wants him to be, and then all of a sudden his world is rocked, and there walk in his ten brothers, and, and all those emotions come back to him. And he sees them, and immediately he sets this, this plan into action. He accuses them of being spies. They say, no, we're not spies. We're just a bunch of brothers. Go get your brother Benjamin. He doesn't say Benjamin, but go get your youngest brother and bring him back, and I'll keep, I'll keep one of you here until you bring him back and prove that you're not spies. And so they go. They convince their father after almost starving to death. They go and they bring Benjamin back. And, and Joseph makes this, this monstrous 180-degree turn. He, he's accusing them of being spies, trying to, trying to manipulate and, 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 and find a plan to attack Egypt. And then when they come back the second time, he, he invites them into his home. He's having meals with them. He's giving them special treatment. And, and what's, what's happening with this guy? You know, what's happening? We don't, we don't get it. And at the end of chapter 43, we see this, this phrase in verse 34, and it says, And the portions were taken from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as, as any of theirs, and any of theirs being his brothers, the ten other brothers, and they drank and were merry with one another. And, and just to interpret that, that figure of speech in Hebrew, it's, it's they, were, they drank and got drunk is what that means. So they had a good time. They partied a little bit with, with Joseph. First they're being accused of being spies. Now they're partying with the second most, most powerful man on earth. A good day, I would say, for the ten brothers of Joseph and Benjamin. We see that Joseph has this plan, and he's, he's going he's gonna to finally kind of work it into, into reality. And he, he, he turns to the the steward of his house, just the, 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 the most important servant of the house, and he says, hey, here's what you're going to do. You're going to do the same thing you did last time. You're going to put their money back in their bags, and then in the, youngest, in the youngest bag, put my special cup, my special cup, which is, I'm sure, worth as much as all the money put back in the bags. And it's very important. It's a very special thing, apparently, in his house, and so here's what Joseph, Joseph has done. He knows that Joseph's father, Jacob, has been treating Benjamin special like he treated him whenever he was younger before he was sold into slavery. He knows this because Benjamin didn't come with them the first time around. And we see a little bit later that earlier on in the conversation, whenever they were being accused of being spies, they explained the reason why our youngest brother didn't come is because our father loves him more than all of us, and if he would leave him, he would surely die. And if, it's, and, and, and if something bad happened to him, then he would, of course, surely die. If, if just leaving his presence would make him die, if something bad happened, he would surely die. So Benjamin is receiving special treatment. Joseph knows this, even, even just from a distance. And he knows that Joseph's brothers know this. And so he has this meal with them. And what does he do when he has this meal? He gives Benjamin... Five times as much food. He, he starts treating Benjamin as if he's special. But the reason why Joseph's brothers hated him so much is because he was receiving special treatment. He was being, he was being held back from the more physical labor of being a shepherd. He was, 
He got to stay home with his dad and learn the family trade. He was the, the chosen son. He had this special coat. He was getting all this special stuff. Now, Benjamin is going to receive the same thing. And, 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 and Joseph, he's, he's really trying to set the stage for the attack on his brothers here in just a second in the rest of this chapter. With the cup in the bag. And then we're going to trap them. Verse 3, as we keep going in this story. As soon as the morning was light, meaning as soon as the sun started coming up, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had, not gone, they had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after them, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have, done, you have done evil in doing this thing. And when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. The steward spoke to them these words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. Basically, he's saying, Why would we bring what... what potentially could be seen as us stealing back to you just to steal from you again. We wouldn't do that. That doesn't make any sense. How then could, could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? And this is where it gets really interesting. When it, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. Jacob, we won't let anything happen to Benjamin. We promise we will protect him. We will go to the ends of the earth to protect him. And now they're saying, wherever this cup is found... Uh, that person should die. We'll get back to that in just a second. And we also will be the, my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you said, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and, the, and, he, search, and, the, and he searched, he being the, the steward, began beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. A few things that we just need to just quickly touch base on before we go, get too far. As we see in, in uh, verse 5 here, that the accusation is, don't, don't you know that this is the cup that my Lord drinks from, and... and this is also the cup that he practices divination. In the ESV, it's, it's worded like this, by this that he practices divination. Now, this, this throws some people off. They think, well, maybe Joseph is worshiping pagan gods and he's doing uh, divination is, is simply a, a physical act of learning what God is saying to you or, or the gods are saying to you. Uh, the most common thing was you would, you would take a, a lamb or a ram or some kind of, some kind of animal and you'd cut it open, you'd pull out its guts, and you'd lay it on this table, and then some priest would look at it and say, oh, the God said this, which is just total baloney, and they're just making stuff up, and, and nobody's going to question them because nobody knows what in the world they're looking at because they don't know what in the world they're looking at either. But that's what divination is. It's essentially just a physical act of, of something, of some kind, that tells us what God is saying, or what the gods are saying. For the Egyptians, it's multiple gods. 
In Israel, all forms of divination are forbidden except for one, and that's the use of the umum and the thermum, and nobody really knows what in the world they were doing with those, and, and we'll leave it at that. So some people go, well, Joseph is, doing, is, is, is using some form of divination with this cup, so what, what does that mean? I don't think that that's what it means. I don't think Joseph is actually performing any divination, number one. I think he's playing the part of the pagan guy. Uh, number two, the, the wording in here is, is a little strange. The Hebrew behind it is a little strange. And most likely what he's saying, and we learn a little bit more in, chap- in verse 15, it says, and Joseph said to them, we'll get back to this here in a second, but we'll get to this in a second. He's, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can, can indeed practice divination? And I think what we're learning is that Joseph is saying that you took something that is my possession and I can divine where it comes. I can ask the gods where it went, and they'll tell me because it's my thing. right? I think that's ultimately what he's saying. And so, he's, so I think the accusation is not, you stole my, you stole my worship item, but rather uh, you stole something of mine, and I can figure it out through consulting the gods. Not that it really matters that much. I don't think, I still think Joseph is playing the part. Uh, but nonetheless, we can move on. And so Joseph has this accusation against them. And, and Joseph's brothers, they respond sort of sort of oddly, but you know they're right in their response. They know that they didn't steal anything. They're not that foolish. They're like, look, we, we brought money back. We, we want to be above board because if we don't have food from you, we don't have food at all. We're probably going to die. We don't, so, so we're going to be above board, right? We're going to pay for, for, for our stuff. And so there's no way that any one of us would steal something from this man who has treated us so well, especially in consideration how he treated us the first time. And they were so confident in, in their innocence, which, again, they are, in fact, innocent. They're so confident in their innocence, they turn to him and they say, they say, hey, whoever has it, put him to death and we'll be your slaves too. Now, again, this isn't the point of the story, but let's... Let's learn something from these guys. Let's, let's, be, let's realize that our words matter. Right? Jesus in the New Testament, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, he says about oaths. He's talking about oaths. He says, don't, 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 don't take an oath. Don't make an oath. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. What Jesus is saying, he's not necessarily telling us not to sign legal documents to say, you know, when we, when we take a mortgage out on our house, we sign, yeah, I'll pay that back. Right? Technically, that's an oath. I'm actually saying, yeah, I'm going to pay that back. He's not saying don't do that. He's saying, he's saying be, be real with your words. Stop lying and deceiving and, and be so honest that everybody who knows you knows that whatever you say will actually happen. Probably the most important place that this happens is with our children and, and with, our, with our coworkers. If we're constantly telling our children, yeah, I promise that we'll do that later, and then we don't, what does that mean for our word? Our yes is not yes, and our no is not no. We should be more serious with our words, especially because our words matter. In a situation like this, our words are really going to come back to bite us. In Judges chapter 11, Jephthah, he's one of the judges of Israel, he makes this vow to God that if, if God would help them win the battle, Whatever comes out of my house first, I'll sacrifice to you. And you know what came out of his house first? His daughter. And so he's got to sacrifice. Let's be real with our words. Let's recognize, recognize our words are very, very important. Even when we know we're right, let's not, let's not say somebody should be put to death if we're wrong. 
Let's be real. So they make this, this they swear this thing, well, whoever, whoever has this should let him be put to death. And the steward of the house, he says, well, it sounds good, but how about we just do this? How about the person who st- stole it can just be a slave and, and the rest he can go home? How petrified do you think they were whenever they opened up Reuben's sack, right? Reuben being the oldest, they open up the bag and, and there's the money sitting on the top. They're like, Wait, I know we paid him this time. There's no way that happened again. Do you think there was pure panic in their heart? Like, oh man, maybe there, maybe there is a company. And then the next bag, oh, there's the oh no. Finally, they get to Benjamin, they're like, well, Benjamin, he certainly didn't steal it. And there it is. It says they tore their clothes. Whether they actually tore their clothes or not doesn't really matter. Uh, This is another figure of speech, meaning they were very, very extremely sorrowful for the thing that they just said and the the thing that just happened. Jacob, Dad, we will not let anything happen to Benjamin. We promise. Whoever stole the cup, be put to death. Benjamin, what are you doing? Verse 14 goes on and it says, And Judah, when Judah, it's very interesting how Judah becomes the primary character here. Judah, I think, think as, as you look at it literarily, I think Judah just becomes a representative of the brothers instead of saying the brothers or instead of listing off all ten brothers. Judah becomes just the, the, the focal point. Judah is, is representative of all his brothers. And it says, When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, meaning he hadn't gone to work. And they fell before him to the ground. It's so, it's, it's so amazing how for a third time God has fulfilled the dream of chapter 37. Joseph has, has dreams, right? He has two dreams. The first dream is that his brothers will bow down to him. In chapter 42, verse 6, chapter 42, verse 6, and it says, and he was, he was the one who, who sold all to all the people of the land, Joseph. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him. They bowed down to Joseph. And then chapter 43 and verse 26. And when Joseph came to the house, they brought into the house the, to him the present that they had with him and bowed down to him to the ground. And now here in chapter 44, verse 14. And they fell before him to the ground. This is a, a different tense of the same word. They prostrated themselves. And this time it's, it's emphatic. Something has changed each time they've had an inter- interaction with Joseph. The first time, it's just a reverence thing. We know that this guy's important. He's got food for us. We don't have food without him. So we're going to honor him. We're going to bow down before him. We're going to say, you're an important person. Now give us some food. The second time was much different. They had been accused of being spies. Now they're going into his house. Now we're really serious. We really care how you see us seeing you. We want to make sure that you know... We recognize your status. And now this time, this time something has changed. They fell down before him. They, they, they forcibly did this. They're, they're, they're enacting a greater sense of, of honor to Joseph by doing so. It has built over the course of three chapters. And now Joseph says in verse 15, Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Don't you know that I could have found you? You're stealing my stuff. What are you doing? And Judah said, What should we say to my Lord? 
What shall we speak? Or how can, how can we clear ourselves? God has found out our guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also whose hand the cup was, has been found. But he said to them, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father's to your father. In other words, Joseph says, No, no, I don't want I don't want all of you. I just want the one who stole it. You see what he's done? He's treated Joseph with favor. And then he gave them an out. Before they came back to the city, they could have left. Joseph's brothers could have, or Benjamin's brothers could have been like, yeah, well, why did you do such a dumb thing? Dad will understand that you stole a cup from this important person. He's not going to be mad anymore. We'll just go home. But they don't. They travel back to the city. And now, now again, they say, look, we'll stay with Joseph. We'll be servants together because the reality is we don't want to go back home. We don't want to go back and see, see our dad and, and give him that terrible news. I think he would rather us all be dead here together. And Joseph says, no, no, no. You don't get out that easy. No, you have to, you have to go home. Leave Benjamin here. And, and here's, what, here's essentially what's taking place. They have been given an opportunity to sell Benjamin into slavery to, to rescue themselves, just exactly like it was before with him. Really, if, if Joseph wasn't being so sneaky, you'd almost give him credit for being brilliant. And I don't think we want to give Joseph credit for being, being sneaky and, 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 and rotten, but that's the story, I guess. What's changed? What's different? Do the, do the brothers leave? Verse 18. Then Judah, again, Judah being the the surrogate for the rest of his brothers, went up to him and said, Oh, oh, my Lord, please let your servants speak a word in, in, your, in my Lord's ear, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. You're a really important guy. Let me talk to you. My Lord asked his servants, saying, this is, just, this is Judah just recounting what has taken place up until this point. He says, Have you... Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his, of his mother's children. And his father loves him. This is, how we know Benjamin, this is how we know Joseph knew about Benjamin and knew about his special relationship with his father. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face. You won't get any food. That's what he's saying. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes down with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn into pieces. 
and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Sheol is just the word for death. Now, therefore, as soon as I come, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servant will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant, meaning Judah in this particular instance, became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as the servant of my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. What's happened? Everything up until this point about Judah in particular and about all the brothers has not been positive. Story after story in this, in this, we see Judah and Tamar, we see Reuben and, and, and Bilhah, and, and it's just there's again and again just stories of their, of their kind of poor state as humans, their their sinful state as men. What's changed? I think what's changed is the conviction of their hearts. How many of you can remember something that happened with with vivid detail, something that happened twenty? two years ago. I bet you there's very few events in your life that you can remember back 22 years and and remember and recall them with very great detail. This is one of those events for these brothers. They remember the sorrow that their father went through. They remember the, the pain and the turmoil that they felt after they sold their brother into slavery and God brought the weight of their sin down upon them. In the New Testament, Paul, in the book of of Romans, he talks about the law's purpose. The purpose of the law was never to bring about salvation. And this is something that I think we need to shift in our minds. The purpose of the law was not to bring about salvation. God has always been the God of salvation. Salvation has always happened through God's work and forgiveness. Period. End of story. It takes takes. Five minutes of reading in the book of Psalms to see this sentiment reminded to us again and again and again that, that Lord, you are my salvation, not, not the sacrifices that I make. And those sacrifices that are made to God and as, as, as sacrifices made to cover sins are only representative of the salvation that God is already bestowing upon the people of Israel. No, the sacrifices of the, the, the law in the Old Testament was always meant to show us our absolute desperate need for God as Savior. It's to bring about conviction, conviction spoken to us by the words of the Holy Spirit into our lives. And it's the conviction of the, of the brokenness that is our lives that brings us to transformation. 
Judah has been changed because over the course of 20 years, God has brought about conviction of the events of selling his brother into slavery and the, and the sorrow and the pain that has followed him throughout the course of his life. And now he is finally coming to the point where that conviction is changing who he is. We should never run from the Spirit of God convicting our hearts of our sin because it's, it's in these moments of life, in these moments of pain and turmoil, that we are changed. That we are transformed into something new. Now, the question is, is what are we changed into? That's where it gets good. We're changed into images of Christ. purpose of the law is to is to convict our hearts is to convict our souls so that we might know our need for God and and all of that works transforms us into understanding that everything that we do all the actions of our lives all our attempts to be better and more morally upright people is all to bring about unity in God's creation in the New Testament, we talk about the kingdom of God coming into the earth, right? The kingdom of God coming. God's reign and rule over the earth. If you look at the Old Testament law and you think about what God is doing in the New Testament and how we're constantly being told in, in, the, in the books of First uh, and Second Corinthians, this is what Paul's really harping about is unity in the body of believers. But in the Old Testament, every one of the laws of the Old Testament is designed to bring us back to peace, to shalom, the Hebrew word. So if I, have a, if I have an ox that kills my neighbor's sheep, in order to find peace with my neighbor again, I either give that man one of my sheep, or I have his ox kill one of my sheep, or him probably kill one of my sheep, to kind of level the playing field, to balance things out. But it's, it's never about the balance. It's about the unity that is brought back together. Everything that I do should be about bringing us Together, And this is why when Jesus is asked in the New Testament, hey, what's the most important commandment? What does Jesus say? He says, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 and following. He says, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he doesn't stop there. He says, what's the greatest commandment? He says, okay, here's the greatest commandment. Love God with everything you are. And the second is like it. You can't, can't have the first without the second. You can't have the second without the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the commandments are wrapped up in these two commandments. Love God, love each other. West for communion. Greater love has no man than this. He lays down his life for his friend. Jesus is the, is the, is the pinnacle example, is the climax example of what it means to truly love. Jesus came to his creation, his creation that he has every right to rule and reign over with an iron fist. And he comes in love and humility, born to a virgin in a manger, lives a life of submission to his creation, goes to a cross, suffers and dies, gives himself so that we can be in communion with each other and with God. Judah has been transformed from his selfish, foolish, broken self by the conviction of his sin through his life 
to be a representative of Christ. He goes to he goes to Joseph. He doesn't know it's Joseph. He goes to Joseph and he says, look, I cannot possibly go through this again. And he says, I will stay here. I will give all of myself so that my brother might live. Isn't that a beautiful example? The reason why the story of Joseph is so wonderful is because it's not just Joseph who is the picture of Christ, right? Joseph is a picture of Christ. He is, he is sold into slavery. He suffers, and eventually he will rescue all the earth. But no, he's pulled out of the same mold, and Judah now is pulled out of the same mold. Two examples of Christ here. It's beautiful. And this is how all of our lives should be marked. We live our lives, and we, we sin, and we fail, and we make mistakes, and the Spirit of God comes and convicts our hearts and impresses us and pushes us. And I think what God wants from us is not perfect little robots doing all the nice things, but I think He wants us to be changed and transformed into the image of His Son who gave Himself for others. I think that's what God wants for us. To be pressed and to be, and to be molded and to be burned with the fire of purification, to be changed and transformed into the image of Christ so that we would all sacrificially love and work to bring unity to ourselves and to this world. Wouldn't that be a beautiful picture? We are transformed by conviction into the image of Christ, the one who forfeits himself for the salvation of men. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Spirit of God, Great Father, we thank you for the work of your Son Jesus on the cross one who truly was the example of self-sacrifice. That your sacrifice paid for the sins of our lives, for the sins that we committed, the atrocities that we have committed, the, the things that make us broken and vile. We thank you that your transforming work is illumination of our brokenness, not for the sake of being crushed, but for the sake of being transformed. Being transformed into the image of your Son. Being molded and changed and moved and morphed into creatures who would seek continually and constantly to love one another sacrificially. To be willing as, as Judah was for his brother Benjamin to give himself for somebody else. And I thank you and I praise you for this story. I thank you and I praise you for the great story. Judah's sacrifice was beautiful. Joseph's life is illuminating, but the story of your son 
is everything. He's going to praise you for his life, his love, and his sacrifice. It's in his precious name. Let's stand up and sing together.